Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broaden our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I'm here with Jason. Hey, everyone. How's it going? What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing well. About yourself? Pretty good. We're, uh, we're starting a new block. It's our first block of the year. We're going to be talking about fantasy films. Fantasy films. Specifically, like, medieval sword and sorcery type fantasy yeah. films. I have bukus of notes about the fantasy genre. We're going to talk about all that. Okay. We're going to talk about our film, Dragon Slayer from 1981. Yeah. Um, first, a very minor shout out. In the time since our last recording, um, our friend over at Unsung Horrors, Erica, her Kickstarter, or Indiegogo, I should say, for The Sweetest Taboo, an awesome film book all about child death and film. It completed funding. I think it got like 200% funded. Nice. Which is freaking awesome. Excellent. Um, so obviously, at this point, you've missed the boat on that. I'm sure there'll be some way to purchase them maybe after the fact once it actually is you know formally released. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll throw that link and the show notes, so you can go and at least follow along with the after effects of all of that. Well, at the very least, we have a cool book to buy when it comes out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm worst looking, case I'm scenario. To it. I'm already kind of mapping out where I'm going to put it in my bookshelf. So, uh-huh. nice. Stoked for that. <laughs> so, uh, congratulations, Erica. We love you. Yeah, that's great. Congratulations. I'm glad the book got lots of support. Yeah. Other than from Indiegogo themselves, apparently. <laughs> right, right. Screw <laughs> those jerks. Uh, um, so, yeah. Uh, I guess before we dig into all the the fantasy magic and whatnot, we will talk about what we've been watching. Yeah, what have you been watching? Okay, well, um, let's see. There's a lot of things I could talk about. Mm -hmm. A lot of things I want to talk about. Sure. Um, hmm. I'll talk about this one first, I think. I'm I'm talking about a Japanese film called Noise from 2022, directed by Ryuichi Hiroki. Um... A lot of this had hype just for, I guess, if you're like in the anime community. Um, there's a popular anime called Death Note. And the live action films got a lot of hype around them for the actors that played the main characters, Light and L. And this film, Noise, is kind of like a reunion for the two of them because they both take leading roles in this film. That was kind of the hype around it. And I, I just watched it mostly because it seemed like it was like a mystery thriller film. Mm-hmm. Um, actually quite good, I thought. So it's this remote island named Shishikari. And they're very behind the times, very like rural, remote, ran down kind of island city. Um, and it's like an older generation. There's not many new people coming in. What what kids there are kind of grow up, graduate, and then like go on to like mainland Japan, somewhere else. So it's like a you know aging, retiring place. Mm-hmm. Um, and one local guy, he has started this black fig farm, and that's kind of become their big thing. They're building up like to bring in workers, have like an export that matters. All that kind of stuff. And so the, the central plot is it's this dude and his brother. And the, the main dude runs the fig farm. His brother's like a hunter for the in the local area. And it's just, you know, they're trying to build up. They're trying to save their little island home. And randomly, this dude comes to live there. He wants to, like, work, kind of, like, start a new life. And he has a history of being some sort of child predator. So it's kind of like a getaway, like, rehabilitate yourself sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he first arrives there, he starts being a little creepy and weird around the lead's daughter because he has a little girl. That's not too surprising, right? Um, and as they sort of realize what's going on, they think he's trying to like abduct her and they confront him. Mm-hmm. And in this confrontation, it kind of escalates and gets out of hand. And the next thing you know, they accidentally kill this guy. Oops. But he hadn't really done anything yet. Right. And so they don't know what to do. And there's this young guy that's like in their friend circle who just became the police officer for the island. 
And his predecessor was this really old guy that kind of had this thing of like, oh, we know sometimes you got to bend the law a little bit to help mm-hmm. the island. So he decides that they're just going to hide the body, cover up that anything happened, and that'll just be that, and they can continue on. However, they didn't know he was this convicted criminal, and he had actually come to the island with, like a, uh, I guess, like a caseworker kind of person that was kind of overseeing wow. his rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And before he got out on his own, he killed the caseworker. Oh. So the actual like mainland like police detectives come to the island looking for this guy because they assume he's like killed his caseworker. They find like the wrecked car. Right. And so they're looking for this killer on the island. They don't know he's already dead. And it becomes this like cat and mouse game of the cops trying to find the killer. As they start to peel back layers, they start to think there's something else going on. And then the locals on the island are trying to cover everything up and construct a believable enough story that it will get the police to leave. Okay. And then it takes this like black comedy route of kind of spiraling out of control, very like Fargo-esque mm-hmm. almost, where like uh, the mayor finds out about their secret and then tries to blackmail them because <laughs> right. she wants control of the fig farm because that's what's going to make all the money. Uh-huh. And then it's like, well, what do they do about her? And then and then they accidentally kill her. And then just like <laughs> it mounts and it mounts and it mounts. Um it was really good and it was like very tense, um, very well like paced, like each little revelation of the plot as it went. A lot of times it made me feel of like it was a reverse wicker man. Cause if you flipped it, if it was from like the police detective's perspective, you're coming to this Island that's got a famous export because a person went missing and all the locals kind of know about it, but they're conspiring against you. Yeah. I was um, thinking wicker man when you were describing So it was it. an interesting angle and, and there's got some twists and then there's one like big end twist that like you never see coming. Pretty cool. A lot of fun. Sounds um, good. If you dig thrillers, I think it's one to look out for. Is this readily available? Uh, it is not currently. No. Mm. Um, it's been in some festivals. It's out there in the aether. I love you how you can just tease it. everyone. Yeah. You yeah, get so excited and you're like, well, you can't watch <laughs> it. Um, and then I'll talk about one more, I think. Uh, well, you know, I should just say I did finally watch Morbius. I'll throw that in there. <laughs> have it. Um, I wanted to wait, you know, till the memes died down and just see. Try to judge it on its own. Uh, judge it on its own. And, you know, I, so I came to it with a fresh mind and, and open to receive what it was doing. And, you know, it's, oh, it's just pretty shitty, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Um, I'm not watching it. You know, I don't like Jared Leto, but I do think he was well cast to play the character. Yeah. And, you know, he's fine. He's not a bad actor. He's just a very weird person. And it's like the premise of it's fine, mostly. But then it's just like the, the dialogue is so bad. You can tell it's like, ooh, it's just awfully written. Yeah. And people will tear through these lines. And you can tell just on their face. They're like, what the fuck did I just say? <laughs> I don't understand. Right. Um, there's this like police detective that's kind of after him throughout the film. And he just feels like he is in a completely different, like he should be in like a knives out movie or something like jokey comedy mystery thing. Mm. Uh, doesn't mesh at all. You know, it's got really painful special effects, especially cause like, well, it hurts cause you look and there's one look of him as Morbius where they did the makeup and everything and like transformed his face that way. And it looks good and it looks great. It looks yeah. fine. Uh, it's pretty much the character peeled right off the comic page, which is awesome. But then there's these other times when he starts to transform where it like just flashes for a minute, his face. Mm-hmm. And they did it with CG and it looks like a fucking Snapchat filter. Oh, God, in. no. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. Sometimes just a nice makeup job is all you need. <laughs> Some prosthetics maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't throw on layers of fucking CG. And I don't know, even tonally like, Morbius has always been more of like an anti-hero type character, right? Mm-hmm. So he is more of like on the, the wrong side of like the law and justice and that kind of thing. But 
And this one, like for the film, they really tried to make him like very goody goody in a way that's like, eh, didn't feel so true to the comic because he was very much like, no, I can never feed on anyone ever. All of this is a blight that should never be allowed to have existed. Well, that's lame. Um, and, and you know, the, in the comics, it's more gray, which I think is what they probably should have leaned into. Right. So, but no, they can't do that because that would be you know morally ambiguous, and they can't have that. No. <laughs> So yeah, uh, it, it's not good. Don't know what you expected. Morgan time. <laughs> All right. There we go. And then the last one I want to talk about, because I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. You watched this with me. We we hung out one night to check it out. Uh, a little Hong Kong film called Writing Wrongs from yeah. 1986. So much fun. Directed by Corey Yuen. Just about a uh, down-on-his-luck lawyer who has seen, when the law gets bent, how corrupt things can become and mm-hmm. decides to take it into his own hands. And dish out vigilante justice upon people who fuck with the legal system. Yep. Which uh, puts him on the uh, path of a hotshot cop, Cindy. Cynthia Rothrock. Played by Cynthia Rothrock, who is fucking amazing in this she's film. Great. She's so And I good. don't know why she's not more famous for all the I, stunt work, the, I know. the action work, just everything. I know. She should have been huge in America. Yeah. Um, amazing film. And, like, not only is the action so great, but, like, the plot's really good. And it has this very, like, mean-spirited, dark-tinged, like, where does seeking vigilante justice get you in the end? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, like, you burn yourself out and you don't really make anything better. You do avenge whatever wrong, but, like, at what cost? Right. Um, And the ending is different, too. I was not expecting that ending. (laughs) A super bleak ending that really, like, nails that point home, which was just amazing. And, like, uh, I think I got the Blu-ray for this from Vinegar Syndrome. Mm -hmm. They did a release. Which was very good because they have like every cut of the film on there if you want yeah. to check it out. Super awesome. If you love Hong Kong action films, you have to see this movie. It's yeah. like a must get. It's great. I, any way you can get it. Streaming, buy it, whatever. Yep. It's like a mixture between John Woo and like Troy Hark or uh, John or um, Jackie Chan movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was, God, so, so good. Um, that said, what have you been watching, my friend? Well, um, the big one I'll talk about, I, cause I, I did not watch this back in the day. I'm not exactly sure why. I think it, I thought it looked silly. And I was in my, you know, young teenage brooding serious horror fan phase. Mm-hmm. But um, because of the presumably late and definitely great um, Julian Sands, oh. I watched this in his honor. Uh, Warlock from 1989. God, I fucking love Warlock. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I- I'm not going to say it's a good movie. <laughs> It knows but, it's not a good movie, and that's why yeah, it's good. It's a very fun movie, mm-hmm. you know. And Julian Sands is great in it. He's great in everything. So uh, yeah, I had never seen this one. Somehow I avoided it back in the day. Which there's a nice. Uh, I think it's Festron. They put out a nice little collection of the Warlock films. Oh, did they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I watched this one streaming. It was streaming on Tubi. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't know. I forget it was Steve Miner. <laughs> And it has some of his traits. I mean, it's a little overlit. A lot of, like the beginning starts. The beginning is set in the past. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of atmospheric. There's oh, some yeah, nice, yeah. cool shots with like when they're going up into the tower. There's this. It's it's nighttime or it's dusk, and there's just little shafts of light shining through. Mm-hmm. And it's really pretty. And yeah. I'm like, wow, this is no, pretty good. <laughs> but then it gets like to modern day, and everything's like flat and overlit. <laughs> but uh, it, it's amusing. If you've never seen Warlock for some reason. And you're in a mood for some 80s cheese. It's, it's hard to go wrong with it. Or if you just want to watch something with Julian Sands, because you know, he's great. It's a good pick for him. Yeah. And I also threw out that I watched uh, Megan 
Oh. Yesterday. The unrated version. It's now streaming on Peacock. Nice. I'm waiting for the Blu-ray because it's just right around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I won't spoil too much for you because you haven't sure. seen it yet. But it's enjoyable. I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. So let me pose the question. If you had gone to see it in theaters with the PG-13 cut, do you think that would have changed your perception at all? I don't think it would have changed anything. Because mm. the art cut's not that much harder. I think there's probably just like a couple of seconds, mm. honestly, that they've, you know, removed for the PG-13 cut. Because it's not that mm-hmm. you know, gory or anything. Right. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I don't think it makes too much of a difference, honestly. But well, then again, I haven't seen the unrated version, so I can't say. Sequel's confirmed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll check out the sequel. I liked it enough to watch the sequel. That's cool. You know. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm up for say. anything that uh, James Wan will stamp his name on. So, <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> Which I don't know if you saw, but we're getting like a Blumhouse like game studio. They're going to try to take some of their properties and convert them into video games. Oh boy! Which should be interesting. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll probably just be something shitty. Like we'll get a Purge Battle Royale. Yeah. <laughs> should there be some Halloween movies or, or uh, video games? Yeah. Today we are talking about Dragon Slayer from 1981, our first and Jason's pick for this fantasy, in brackets, medieval-focused block yeah (laughs) medieval focused so i guess before we get into the film as we always do and we have a new block with a topic we've never covered before we need to take some time to define what fantasy films are and specifically the type of fantasy films we're talking about Mm -hmm. because that is a big umbrella category that yeah a lot of stuff falls under yep i'm gonna give you the broad and then i'm gonna Chunk us down into the, okay. the specifics. So, obviously, fantasy films are part of a genre, the fantasy genre, and that usually involves fantastic themes, things like magic, supernatural events, mythology, folklore, or exotic unknown worlds. It's a form of speculative fiction that goes alongside things like science fiction, horror, and varying other genres. Now, a lot like, say, when we covered musicals, and that kind of goes back to its antecedent in like stage plays. Here with fantasy, of course, that's a abundant literary genre that goes back far beyond even the reach of cinema itself. Mm-hmm. So we're playing in that same playground. I guess all the way back to what Gilgamesh, at yeah. least, as far as the written word goes. <laughs> um, long storied history. So um, when we say fantasy broadly, that can mean a lot of things. So there's various subgenres that are kind of used to delineate that further. And there is some fluidity between like if you say something's one thing, it could still have elements you would find in like a different type. Sure. But you know, that's the, that's the range of things. That's so, any genre really. Um, a lot of these subcategorizations are that's the same way we were talking about like pulling from literature. These ideas are in the same like literary concepts as well. So um, the two most common subtypes that were kind of like the big two, I would say we would focus on and talk about are high fantasy and sword and sorcery. Now, both of these usually involve a quasi-medieval setting, which is what we're kind of focused on for this block here. Mm -hmm. Um, They usually have elements of wizards and spellcasters, magical creatures, other things like that. But so, what is the difference? So, high fantasy films 
tend to feature a more richly developed world and are often more character-oriented or thematically complex. These are things you could think of like where you've got the hero of a humble origin and they set out on a journey and there's a clear distinction between there's a force of good and a force of evil that are at odds with one another. Um, a lot of people are going to point directly to the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, Tolkien's masterpiece, like one of the ultimate defining things of high fantasy, I would say. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, those have been adapted to film. So that's a ready example we can pull to you. And apparently are getting adapted again. Is the Scuttlebutt? They're going to oh, remake them? What? Yeah. <sighs> I could see remaking The Hobbit to trim some of the fat. Oh, yeah. But, well, I don't know. I know. Okay. <laughs> so that's high fantasy. We, we get that. I can see Lord of the Rings. Boom, you've got it. You're yeah, there with us. There you go. Uh, Sword and Sorcery. They tend to be more plot-driven than a high fantasy story. And there's a lot more focus on the action sequences... Um, you'll often have something like you'll have a very physically powerful but unsophisticated warrior, and he's forced to oppose against the you know cruel and cunning wizard who, through magic and trickery, has enslaved the land. Um, although they often still have an epic battle that's between good and evil, um, it may not be so clean-cut and dry still. The hero might have more immediate motivations Instead of, you know, questing because it's the thing to do that's what's good, it may be more they're just looking for some money mm-hmm. or women or whatever, what have you. Or maybe they've got a, a desire for vengeance because their family was slain and that was the impetus for their whole quest. Yep. Um, if we want to point to just one thing, I guess, to kind of be the archetypical example of that, it's got to be Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian. It has to be. Which has, of course, had multiple film adaptations as well. And one good one. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like the Jason Momoa one. Really? Yeah, I think it's fine. Okay. I thought he was fine, but the movie as a whole just didn't do anything for me. Uh, some critics also refer to films that use this element as sword and sandal. Um, but to me, the sword and sandal more is like where you're talking about like a historical setting to me, like an ancient era. Sure. More, more than a fantastical yeah. setting. Yeah. And also the emphasis on magic isn't usually as great. Right. Although it can be like Hercules and chains, something like that. But again, in that it's like, it's coming from like a supernatural source more than like there's wizards running around. Right. Thing. Yeah. Um, and so then just to lay out a few other things that we won't get into, but these will all be prime uh, blocks we could do in other times. Some of the other like notable subgenres, you would say um, there is the idea of urban fantasy. And that's where you've got a modern day setting urban denoting, you know, of course, a city and urban space. But within that, you've got magical goings on. Harry um, Potter. Harry Potter is an example of that. Uh, Dresden Files, mm. which there's not been a movie, I don't think, for Dresden Files, but there has the been a TV, TV show. show. Yeah. Um, anything where it's like a modern day urban setting, but magic's mixed in there. What was the Netflix movie? Was it Bright? Oh, yeah. Where it was like it was modern day, that. but there was like orcs, orcs and elves and stuff. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like... Um... Oh, what's that one role-playing game? Oh, Shadowrun. Shadowrun. Where it's like cyberpunk future, but for some reason fantasy magic shows up. Yeah. Um, Let's see. What else we've got? Um, Some other uncommon ones. There's historical fantasy and romantic fantasy. A good example for those that kind of tags on both a little bit, I would say, is Pirates of the Caribbean. Because that is the historical age of the pirate kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. then you've got these supernatural elements like the, the ghost ship... Right. And the sea god and all this other, you know, Davy Jones, all of that is this fantastical, magical element Mm -hmm. that's being brought into the mix. Um, So that being said, I thought I would just pull us through the decades with some examples real quick. Okay. 
So we got to go all the way back first to the era of the silent film. And um, a lot of these earliest fantasy films come from people like the French film pioneer Georges Méliès. Méliès. Yeah, well, he pretty much invented everything, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Horror film, to a, to a, to a degree, science fiction, yeah. fantasy. I mean, um, the most... he was so concerned about special effects. That was mm-hmm. his thing. So, yeah. And where would you need special effects but to depict the fantastical? Exactly. Um, so obviously his big one is 1902's A Trip to the Moon, which is also bordering on science fiction mm-hmm. to a degree. Um, some other ones from this golden age... Um, we have stuff like Douglas Fairbanks, The Thief of Baghdad from 1924. Now, in my opinion, that's what I would call the first, in, in what I think of as a fantasy film, like what mm-hmm. we're talking about. Yeah. That's what I would call the first real fantasy film. Well, it's actually like a fantastical world that you're in. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there's like swordplay and there's flying carpets and genies and stuff like that, you know? Um, 1924. Also, we've got Fritz Lang's Die Nibelung, mm-hmm. which that's based on a the very... Wagner. Yeah, Wagner, Wagner. like classic stories. Um, which is a thing we're going to continually see when we talk about these fantasy films is often there is a literary antecedent yeah, they're pulling from. Or a mythological one. Um, also in the 20s, there's other stuff. Like you've got um, some of the earliest adaptations of Tarzan as a story that definitely like blends a bit of like a modern world, but also fantastical elements yeah. kind of thing. Um, so then if we get on into the 30s, of course, the big thing there is we have now sound in the mix. Um, some examples from this era might include things like the 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, even the Wizard of Oz to a degree is a fantasy film. Yeah. That's someone, you know, being ported away to this fantastical world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely some magic. <laughs> yeah. Definitely some magic in the mix. Actually, I love um, Wizard of Oz. It's actually one of the best movies ever made. So, um, in the forties, that was of course when color became a super big deal, even more than it already was. It was a burgeoning in the, in the late thirties, um, 1940, there was a, another version of the thief of Baghdad that leaned into all the current techniques at the time to kind of build that up into even, even a bigger spectacle than what it already was. Um, also in the forties, you had things like Sinbad, the sailor from 1947. Um, and then, let's see, 1950s, there was a few major ones. There's stuff like Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Actually, a lot of people list the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, which we've covered before. Woot. Same thing of that sort of being whisked away to a fantastical world mm-hmm. kind of uh, direction. Um, see, I think in the 50s is where fantasy really starts coming into its own. Okay. Because then you get the Harryhausen films. Mm. That's exactly where I was about to go. Excellent. Um, there is one thing I do want to throw out, though, because I'm always concerned about Japanese cinema. Of course. Uh, 1953, we have Ugetsu Monogatari, which took a bunch of classical Japanese ghost stories and kind of depicted them in film. And it's more horror than fantasy, though. Well, they go hand in hand at they, times. They do. They do, indeed. Harryhausen really leaned into special effects, notably with stop motion, to make probably some of like the most iconic, I would say, fantasy films of that period. Well, there's a reason why we call them Ray Harryhausen movies and not whoever the director was, because no one remembers yeah. the director. <laughs> uh, 1958, you had The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Uh, 1963, you've got Jason and the Argonauts. Oh, so good. <laughs> it's one with all the skeletons and yeah, stuff. Yeah, which that's so iconic. Like, yeah. if you just want me to give you a fantasy scene, that's like one yeah. for the ages. Right there. Um. 
Let's see. He did an adapt. He worked on an adaptation of Jules Verne's Mysterious Island. Um, the One Million Years BC, which was like a prehistoric fantasy film. R.I.P. Raquel Welch. She recently died. <laughs> that is true. That's also sad. This episode's just making me so depressed. <laughs> um. So let's see what else we have going on here. And that's when we also start getting the Hercules films too from Italy. All the sword mm-hmm. and sandal stuff, which I would classify as fantasy. Yeah. You're getting monsters, and it's just not as well done as the Harryhausen <laughs> stuff. Uh, let's see. Then we move into the 70s, and we get some other stuff like, uh, I think it's important to mention from the 70s, 75s, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Even though that's a comedy, it's lampooning like the one of the most classic fantasy stories of all time. It's got arguably one of the best wizards ever, Tim the Enchanter. <laughs> <laughs> um. We get, we get more Sinbad films. We have stuff like The Golden Voyage of Sinbad in 74. Uh, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger in 77. Um, there's also some animated movies I wanted to bring up from the 70s, like um, Wizards from 1977. Yeah. Which is like a weird like post-apocalyptic, but also fantasy. That's uh, Bakshi, right? Ralph yeah, Bakshi. Ralph Bakshi. Um, pretty entertaining. I've, I've always been a fan of it, but I know people are pretty mixed on his stuff. Yeah, I think it depends on your tolerance for like psychedelic, mm-hmm. trippy shit. <laughs> uh, also in the 70s, we had a lot of what I would call Lost World films. Mm-hmm. That's things like uh, 75 is the land that time forgot. Or any of those like Journey to the Center of the Earth where you've got something like, oh, there's this Lost World, an inner Earth where there's still like dinosaurs yeah. and right. mysterious unknown things. Um, So in the 80s... Well, I mean, honestly... In the 70s, I think we have like probably the most important, in quotes, fantasy film ever made. Because I think because of Star Wars, mm. which is science fantasy, right? Yeah. But the fantasy tropes were so there. Right, right. <laughs> I, um, th- I think this, this movie is what really opened the floodgates <laughs> to the fantasy films that came out in the 80s. Because um, if we go back to that description for high fantasy, a hero's journey, a humble origin, you've got a simple farmer, farmer boy. Yeah. Goes out on this massive quest. There's this force of good, a force of evil, yeah. quite literally in the Sith and the Jedi. It's more fantasy than science um, fiction. It yeah. really is. Um, but yeah, I think that, that movie single-handedly brought <laughs> on the, the fantasy 80s boom that we had. Um, so we still have Harryhausen in the mix then because we have the epic Clash of the Titans. Yes. Not not the best of his films, but oh man, some of the effects. Some Just for the spectacle. Medusa alone is worth watching that movie. So creepy. Uh, we have stuff like 1981's Excalibur. Another classic. Uh, Ridley Scott's Legend from 85. Not so classic, but has great parts. <laughs> Anything with Tim Curry in that movie. Yeah. Uh, Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yeah, Time Bandits. Time Bandits. Um... And then, of course, also in the 80s, we got this sort of sword and sorcery boom, of course, first with Conan from 82. And then you had stuff like Krull, Fire and Ice. Uh, and then we had, um, I guess what you would say, more like fairy tale styled fantasy films with things like The NeverEnding Story in 84, Lady Hawk, of course, The Princess Bride, mm-hmm. gotta mention that, and uh, Willow in 88. Yeah. And which, it's, it's interesting that Dragon Slayer falls right before these. It came up before yeah. Conan the Barbarian. And it's I think almost that's a very interesting time. It's <laughs> it's it's odd because I always thought they came out around the same time. Yeah, but it's kind of like people saw that and it made them move to be like, "Hey, we can do this." Yeah, now. I think this movie is more influential than people give it credit for. Mm-hmm. 
Um, also in the 80s, we got some of this, like, look at the earliest examples of, like, urban fantasy. One that I guess you don't often consider it being this, but um, Big Trouble in Little China from 86. Yeah. John Carpenter's. You've, you've got this modern-day martial arts kind of it's focus setting. Asian influence fantasy stuff. But there's yeah. this, like, Asian fantastical element mixed in, too. Well, let's also not forget the um, low-budget direct-to-video boom of fantasy films in the 80s. Oh, stuff like yeah. Deathstalker. Yeah. You know, Sword and the Sorceress, shit like that. Um, your Barbarian Brothers. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that stuff was littering the shelves of video stores back in the day. Another sort of urban fantasy thing, and you really think about it, would be Highlander as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. True. Because it has that fantastical element raging across the generations. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the 80s, even beyond this, Jim Henson was a source of some great fantasy elements with both the Dark Crystal and then also Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing Dark Crystal at the theater. It's a weird movie. It's <laughs> a very weird it's a movie. Very weird movie. Uh, in the '90s, on the animation, and there was this whole Disney Renaissance of adapting fantasy works into films. A Disney Renaissance, you say? Yes. Interesting. Uh, things like Aladdin and Hercules. Um, also, in the '90s, there's some of my favorite weird fantasy films, like Army of Darkness, <laughs> which disposes Evil Dead hero Ash into a fantasy world. Yes, um, so good, so classic. And then, of course, when we get into the 2000 and on to more modern times, this is where we have The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. We start to get these big sort of blockbuster fantasy films being a thing. Yeah, fantasy starts becoming more respected again because mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings made so much money. Everybody right. wants in on that. And that also started a boom of sort of adapting literary works too because I, off of the success of Lord of the Rings, you get stuff like The Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. uh, the Golden, Golden Compass. Compass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things like, I think it was a bit before, but Aragon and Inkheart. Even Studio Ghibli, the anime studio that's so beloved, they did an adaptation of Tales from Earthsea. I've never seen that. How is that? That's Have you seen it? quite good. Yeah. It, it only suffers from the fact that it doesn't like adapt at all, so you kind of oh, okay. are left hanging. But that sucks. In one film, what can you do? Right. Um, that's also, we got the Pirates of the Caribbean. And then, again, Star Wars kind of loops back around in this. With... Well, don't, don't forget the, the first Dungeons & Dragons movie. Uh, you know, uh, they tried. <laughs> Did they? Did they? I don't think anyone tried very hard in that movie. Um, but the Star Wars prequels, um, that kind of, again, makes relevant a lot of the fantasy tropes that exist within Star Wars mm-hmm. as a thing. Because with everything, with the whole Senate and all of that, you've got like these large political structures that could same thing as like if a kingdom is under siege or some sort yeah. of problem um just mirrored into a science fantasy world instead of right straight fantasy and currently i think we find ourselves there's kind of a dearth of fantasy movies right now in, mm-hmm. in theaters but i think it's found a home on television oh like yeah game of thrones uh the new lord of the rings series Rings which is actually quite good eh. i recommend it you haven't even seen it you can't say anything <laughs> I, I need not see it oh my god it's good i like it Oh. Uh, the Willow series, mm-hmm. which uh, has its moments. So. <laughs> <laughs> and all the time there's rumors and talks about like other things getting adapted. There's a lot of sword and sorcery stories that you and I love. We keep getting teased with like getting Hawkmoon teased, and yeah. Elric and stuff like that. Supposedly BBC's oh working God. on a Hawkmoon show. Is it going to happen? Probably not. I'm... And the off chance there's some exec out there with way too much <laughs> money. And you're looking for a good fantasy franchise. Anything by Moorcock. Elric and Monimony, please. 
make that. I'm just saying that everyone loves the cinematic universe now. <laughs> right. And Michael Moorcock's Saga of the Eternal Champion. He admitted it. That That is a cinematic universe waiting to happen. Yeah, you get the same characters coming in and, and out of the stories. And, and yeah, it's... It's rock solid, like, 20-year I plan. I mean, is it, is it anything like Marvel? <laughs> no. It's a bit more mature, but, you know, whatever. 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 So anyways, that's a very quick, very whirlwind overview of fantasy films. Obviously, we couldn't name them all. No, there's too many. Just hitting the highlights. It's impossible. Only a fool would try. <laughs> I think that brings us to Dragon Slayer. I think you're right. But also, I think before we can really talk about Dragon Slayer, we have to talk about the state of Disney at the time. Well, that's the first thing we should say. This was a co-production yes. between Walt Disney and Paramount and Pictures. Paramount, yep. And it wasn't their first, I don't think, was it? No, the first was the very, very odd Popeye movie. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? It's weird. That is a bizarre yeah. film. There was a lot of weird shit happening in the early <laughs> 80s. Uh, so I, remember, I remember watching that, too, and it was just... I'm, I didn't understand what I was watching. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. Um. <laughs> yeah, so then they decided to do uh, Dragon Slayer, which... I don't... Like, again, I think if Star Wars hadn't happened, this movie would not exist. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of this, the people that worked on it are Star Wars related when you get, right. get into Absolutely. it. Um, but like when Disney died in was it late 60s, I think it was. Like yeah. Throughout the 70s and early 80s, they just they really couldn't find their vision. They kept making a lot. I mean, <clears throat> I think some of these movies are more remembered now fondly. Things like, you know, Robin Hood. Yeah. Um, Mary Poppins. Yeah, Mary Poppins, those types of things. But they weren't like huge back in the day. <laughs> Um, and probably one of the first examples would be like the black hole. Yeah. Yeah. Which was definitely a star Wars inspired film. <laughs> and actually that's one I like. I'll defend the black hole. I like it. It's been a while, but I, I remember liking it, but they started doing like more chasing the older, mm-hmm. uh, audience members chasing that star Wars money. Really? Uh, so their stuff was getting a bit more, I don't know what you more grown up darker, but it never really seemed to click. Like, it didn't really make them any money. And they were pretty much in this dark age until Little Mermaid came out. What was it, 88? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, But it's interesting that... <sighs> right, so they partnered with Paramount on this one. And it was kind of the brainchild of the director because he also wrote it. Yeah, Matthew Robbins. Thank you, Matthew Robbins. And I'm, I'm surprised this movie got made. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and it wasn't that cheap. It was a $14 million movie. And I think it only made like... Uh, no, I'm sorry. $18 million movie. That's not chump change back then. No. And it made $14 million in the US. So it was a failure. And I just want to set this up, I guess, out of the gate. Um, a lot of the budget was spent on the special effects for the dragon... It's not an absolute, but a lot of people quote that 25% of the budget went into it. Money well spent. <laughs> um, which we'll find out. I have a bunch of quotes I pulled I'll bring up later. But cool. a lot of people love the dragon in this movie, many of which who say it is the best dragon ever put to film. That's because it is the best dragon ever put to film. I'm going to say that right now. And it, it it's uh, all the other dragons I've seen and everything else, Game of Thrones, whatnot, mm-hmm. Smaug. I still love Vermithrax the best. But we'll get into it. We'll get into that. But are you ready for like the Chonky Dragon in the new D&D movie? <laughs> I have nothing against Chonky Dragons. 
<laughs> I'm fine with chunky dragons. I just want dragons to like actually be scary and mm-hmm. formidable and you know alien for lack of a better word. Mm. Okay. So anyway, shall we get into Dragon Slayer? Yeah, I've got a synopsis I can hit you with. Do it. A king has made a pact with a dragon where he sacrifices virgins to it, and the dragon will leave the kingdom alone. An old wizard and his keen young apprentice volunteer to kill the dragon and attempt to save the next person in line, the king's own daughter. Now that sounds like your typical high fantasy type concept. That's mm-hmm. something that could have been done like in the 60s or yeah. whatever, you know? Um, but what I love about this movie that we'll soon find out is that it's it's not high fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really, no. Um, it is a high fantasy story in the shell of something else. Yeah. And I think one of the first things that really tips us off of that is immediately from the score when the movie starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, by score by Alex North. Yeah, and, and you know, apparently some of the tracks he used apparently were things he scored for 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then they got left on the cutting room floor and he just reused them because he liked the pieces. (laughs) If you're going to reuse something, you may (laughs) as well use something from that, right? But I mean, immediately it tells you this is going to be a little bit more horror than fantasy. It's got a darker tone to it Mm -hmm. right out of the gate just from the music. Um, And actually, the score was nominated for an Oscar, but it lost out to Chariots of Fire. Which, I mean... (laughs) I understand, I guess. Right now you're hearing that theme in your head for Chariots of Fire. So there is a reason why it lost. (laughs) <laughs> but the movie opens with a group of people traveling in the dark by torchlight and you know it's weird too because it just starts yeah I, I love that uh-huh. I love that it just starts and you're already something's already happened and you I don't know what that. it is yet and, <laughs> yeah. um, but again like it, it's a lot like Star Wars when it starts the ship comes by right and immediately they're in a battle and stuff's going on yeah and it doesn't fill you in on everything you know it trusts you to catch up Um, so they're approaching this old keep and within this keep, we see an old man. I mean, he's obviously a wizard because he kind of looks like a wizard. You know, he's got the long hair. He's got the robes. I would be surprised if someone assumed something else. <laughs> what else is this guy going to be, right? But he's obviously casting some sort of a spell. He's saying yeah. words. He's throwing ingredients into this pot. And then, like, this fire comes out of the pot. And he's looking in it. And you, you kind of hear a dragon roar yeah. on the soundtrack. So he's obviously looking into the future. It's a bit of a scrying kind of. Yeah, there you go. Scrying. That's a great word. Um, but these visitors are turned away by this wizard servant. Or we turn, his name is Hodge. We find out later. Yeah. Played by Sidney Bromley. And he's great. <laughs> uh, we learned that this is the home of Ulrich of Kragenmore. Ulrich is the uh-huh. wizard that we just saw who was looking into the, into the flames. Played by Ralph Richardson. The great Ralph Richardson, who I always see as the Crypt Keeper in yeah. the Tales from the Crypt from Amicus. <laughs> The classic one, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, but the visitors are like, okay, we're not, we're not leaving until we're seen. We're not going anywhere. Yes, we beseech the wizard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Ulrich's apprentice, whose name is Galen, he goes to see the wizard who's sitting there in a daze. <clears throat> Ulrich has obviously seen something that disturbs him. Yeah. Which we should set up just right out of the gate. Galen's played by Peter McNichol. Probably best known for what? Ghostbusters 2? <laughs> I was going to say Janos, yeah, because yeah. I-, I struggled with this in this film the whole time. I just kept wanting him to start talking like Janos. <laughs> <laughs> and those of you who haven't seen a slightly younger Peter McNichol might be shocked that he's playing the hero. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't a bad-looking guy, 
But he, he's also not exactly the heroic type, which is also something I really appreciate about this movie. Also, uh, it was his theatrical debut. Yeah. Which is crazy. And I think he's very good in the movie. Yeah, he, he is. Once you can get over... God, I've seen Ghostbusters 2 just so many times. <laughs> in the entire time, it's, you will get the baby and I will get the woman. Once you realize what kind of a movie this is, his performance is perfect for it. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, Ulrich even says that he um, has seen his death, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that he will he will see the visitors. And I love the scene because um, <laughs> you see Ulrich getting ready, right? He's putting on the <laughs> elaborate headdress and these robes. And he comes out and Galen's like, uh, he's like that metal sheet. Mm-hmm. He's rumbling like for thunder. And he throws the powder to make yeah, up the Yeah, the flash burst. powder. <laughs> um, so they're all sitting at the table and the visitors are like, we got a problem. Uh, well, actually, yeah, because Ulrich already knows a little bit. He asks yeah. which of them is Valerian. Yes, Valerian, played by Caitlin Clark. Spoiler, who... Valerian is a girl. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, she doesn't do a bad job uh, portraying a male character, I think. Did you catch it the first time you saw it? It's been so long, I don't remember, but I'll say this. Tiffany watched this with me mm-hmm. on this rewatch, and she had never seen it. And the whole first part of the film, she was like, is that a guy or is that a girl? <laughs> right. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's a girl, and that's a plot twist, but no, I'm, I'm not so sure. Yeah. But I think she did a good job with the voice. Yeah. Because she doesn't try to go too deep, but just enough to, to mm-hmm. you know, pull it off, I think. Um, but he knows why they're there, and he wishes to see the artifact they brought. Yeah. Uh, which turns out to be scales. Scales from the dragon. Uh, they also put up what uh, Valerian says is a claw, but Oryx says that it's a tooth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he has this funny line where he says something like, you want me to do battle with that? Um, and they tell them about the lottery that they have in their city or country, Erland, it's called, to appease the dragon. Yeah. Tale as old as time. Mm-hmm. Draw a name and kill someone. Yep. <laughs> um, and I love the scene where Oryx talking about the dragons. Yeah. How about they wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for wizards and how they used to fill the skies and, um. Uh, yeah, that's another thing that's neat about the setting because it is sort of this medieval-y world, but it kind of suggests that at once it was even more fantastical right. than what it is right now. This is obviously set kind of like right after the Dark Ages. Yeah. So it's really before Christianity mm-hmm. really kind of took over in the region and, and that comes into play in the movie too, <laughs> actually. Um, <clears throat> but Ulrich knows who scales they belong to. It's Vermithrax Pejorative. What a name. I love that. That is the most perfect dragon name ever. Vermithrax. (laughs) Supposedly that translates into the worm of Thrace, which makes things worse. That's so cool. That's so fucking awesome. That is the best name. Uh, Let me run this down now because I was going to do this. So uh, praise for Vermithrax. Mm -hmm. George R.R. Martin, author of A Song of Ice and Fire, a.k.a. Game of Thrones. Um, he said that Vermithrax is the best dragon that was ever shown on film. Um, and then one of the deceased dragons in the first season of the show, they mentioned that its name is Vermithrax. It's yeah. like a little head nod. I lost my shit when they said that. Um, Del Toro, he says that Vermithrax is his favorite movie dragon alongside Maleficent and her dragon form. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Marshall has praised Vermithrax 
as one of the best dragons ever set to film. It has to be the greatest screen dragon of all time. Amen. And he said that both its realism and sympathy for its mm-hmm. kind of emotion mm-hmm. of character and action mm-hmm. um, really stood out to him. Yep. So, yes. What do you think about Vermithrax? So, I think it's I mean, pretty, We haven't got to the dragon yet. But. I think he's pretty awesome. I, I have some quibbles with some of the effects. Okay. And I'll, I'll bring it up when we get there. Sure, but, but it is a 1981 movie. Yeah. So, I mean... Uh, it is very impressive, though. Okay, we'll get there. <clears throat> And Ulrich talks about how, like, because you can tell from the scales how old it is. Yeah. And so when dragons get so old, they become especially ornery. (laughs) (laughs) They become decrepit and spiteful, I think are some words he uses. Yeah. And then this is where we have, uh, there's some creepers skulking about, right? Yes. They've been following the little party that came to see the wizard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Men of the King. Effectively. Yes. Named Tyrion, oddly enough. George R. R. Martin kind of connection <laughs> there, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, uh, played by John Halam. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's talking about how, okay, you're just going to stir up trouble. Yeah. You're just, we've You'll got make... a good thing going. You know, we have a, a truce with this dragon. You're going to come. You're going to muck it up, and it's going to kill us all. Yeah, it's too dangerous to mess with. Yep. And he questions Auric's abilities. So, yeah, he doesn't believe in, in magic. I love how he charges them, too, because he says, this is what you wizards do. You always boast of all your power. But when the time comes for you to show it, you say, oh, it's not the right day. Today is not the day we're supposed to do it. The stars aren't right. Uh, You've always got some excuse. Mm -hmm. And I love this guy's voice, too. Yeah. I can't remember the actor's name right now, but he is great. I will look it up quickly. Uh, John Hallam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great voice. Um. Right, so, okay, Ulrich's like, you want a test? Fine, we'll do this, whatever. <laughs> it's a little extreme for a test, though. Yeah, yeah. He has um, Galen go up and fetch a dagger mm-hmm. from his study. I should also mention the amulet at this point, I think, too. Yeah, we've, we've seen that um, Ulrich has this amulet that's kind of like a focus for his power. Yeah. Which, if you play D&D, then you know that, <laughs> that that's technically how it works, of course. <laughs> right. Um. So Galen goes up there, gets the dagger, and I love this scene. He, he he hangs it out the window and says, "Is this the one?" Or it says, "Yeah, throw it down." <laughs> and he tosses it, and it lands like an inch from Tyrion's hand. Yeah. And the guy doesn't even flinch. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Ulrich says, he hands the dagger to Tyrion, and says, "You know, stab me, I'll be fine." He even aims it above his heart. Mm-hmm. Um. Also, uh, tellingly, Tyrion inspects it first, mm-hmm. makes sure that it's like real and not like a trick or something. Yeah, he thinks it might be like a fake dagger. I like, or I like that. And Ulrich kind of touches it and says a few words, offers his chest to him. Uh, Galen tries to leave, but all the doors in the study close, the windows close, and he can only look out through like a slit. Yeah, he wants to go down there and stop. Right. Stop the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and sure enough, yeah, they don't show it, obviously. It's not going to be that graphic of a movie, although it does go places. <laughs> you say that, and then... I say that, and then... Yeah. But he, he stabs him, and, it, like, there's no expression on Orc's face. It doesn't change. Yeah. And I love how Tyrion, he starts to look like, oh, shit, this guy's for real. But then he just falls dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first time you watch it, it's not what you expect to happen. No. At all. Not at all. And that's one of the things I love about this movie. It's very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, 
<laughs> you're going to you're going to pull Ryan Johnson quote on me or something, but it does kind of your expectations are kind of reversed. You know? I, I would say it defies convention. It does defy convention, indeed. Uh, so Galen falls or uh, Ulrich falls to the ground, and Tyrion's like, "Yeah, see," <laughs> <laughs> and he he and his men leave, and, and they're kind of dejected and unsad. Valerian and her crew just kind of, yep, start their march back to the village. Well, they they all stay there for the cremation. Oh yeah, yeah because true. Galen does cremate the body. As ordered. Mm-hmm. And we see Hodge collect some of the ashes, too, mm-hmm. in a pouch. Um, so Galen's kind of like just packing things up. The visitors have left. And we see that Amulet keeps, keeps trying to get his attention. Like, yeah. it's in a little chest, and it will glow, and it will, like, disappear and teleport and appear <laughs> somewhere else until he picks it up. Yes, yeah, so and we learn it was the secret to his magical power. Yes. So then Galen decides, well, I'm going to go slay this dragon. Yeah. It almost kind of suggests that that was like what Ulrich had seen in his vision, maybe. Right. right. Like it was time for him to go and pass on his powers to Galen so he could be <laughs> the one to to stop this dragon. Exactly. Because even at one point, uh, Galen says something about how you can't make the journey. You know, you're too old to right. make this journey. Um. So they're, <laughs> Galen and Hodge are going after the people who have already left the visitors. And I love it because we see Galen, he's like using the amulet. It's obvious <laughs> that he's using it. Like if it wasn't for this amulet, he wouldn't have any real powers. Yeah. But he's like floating a rock or egg or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And Hodge is like bitching about having to do all the chores. <laughs> he's, he's still the uh, servant in the end. Yeah. And it tells Galen that he's too concerned about his tricks and knavery. And, and we see Galen be an ass because he, yeah. he starts messing with Hodge using the amulet, <laughs> like pulls his clothes <laughs> off and shit like that. You've had your powers for like two minutes. Yeah. And Galen even says something like, I'm the master now. I was like, okay. The hubris of wizards. Mm-hmm. Um, Galen makes a show of arriving at their camp after they catch up with mm-hmm. them. Says that he's going to do what they asked to Orc. Says yeah. he's a sorcerer and he'll kill this dragon. Which lifts their spirits. And then we cut to a scene where there was this procession taking a, a young woman uh, out in the middle of nowhere, it looks like. We see some, see some caves. It's kind yeah. of a barren area. And they're tying her to this post yeah. that noticeably has like big claw marks on it and <laughs> yeah, looks yeah. kind of scorched. And, and blood stains. <laughs> yeah. Um, we find out she's one of the sacrifices. Mm-hmm. I think it's like every equinox or something they have to do this. Yep. Um, the people leave because we and we hear like a rumbling too. Yeah. They leave pretty quickly. Too. Yeah, they make they make haste, and she starts trying to free herself. And yeah, here we get like some like you can see it's pretty gnarly. Like yeah. the, the manacles are like chafing her hand, and blood starting to come out. And she gets one hand free, uh, and then we see like a big claw kind of appear in the frame. They really tease the dragon. Oh, out. They te- it, yeah. it's very much like the old monster movies from the fifties. Mm-hmm. You just see like you know a footprint in the sand at first and yeah. you'll see like maybe an arm or a leg and you don't see the whole thing until the end. It's very classic in you that get regard. The, the big reveal. Yeah. Um, she gets her other hand out, but it, it gets stopped by the dragon and you see like, it's like a POV. Yeah. Vermithrax. Cause you see him rising up, looking down at her and then he toasts. Her. Which again, very much is like a horror movie convention. Oh, very much. 
very horror. Um, let's see. Oh, and this is where Galen finds out that Valerian is a chick. Yep, he uh, stumbles upon her bathing. <laughs> bathing in the river. And this is also a scene that's completely excised from like a lot of the TV prints that would play. They would cut the scene out entirely. <laughs> so when you find out that Valerian's a girl, you're like, what? <laughs> um, because also this is like the only, I think it's the only Disney movie where there's frontal male nudity, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very brief. Yeah. It's underwater, but it's like, yeah. Yeah, but, but he undresses himself to jump into the water and... That's probably why this isn't on Disney Plus. They'll have yeah. to put like hair over his winger or something and butt like they did with Daryl Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Peter McNichol has a hairy butt. Um, but basically she's going as a boy to avoid getting avoid the lottery. Yep. Her, uh, her father's a blacksmith. Mm-hmm. And this was the idea he came up with to save her from the lottery. Pretty smart. Although, you know, not great for her, I guess, but you know, at least she gets to live. <laughs> Um, Tyrion comes back up. He and his men come upon their camp. Yep. And they see Hodge there. So they figure out, oh, okay, well, they're... They're, they're still going to try. Yeah, they're still going to try. He's not having any of this, so he gets his bow. It fucking kills him. Yeah. And Galen sees this in a vision, mm-hmm. like in the water of this happening. And I like this scene because he catches up with Hodge, who's like stumbling down the road, and he thinks he's fine, but he turns around, he's got an arrow sticking out of his chest. <laughs> yeah. Which is sad. Mm, very sad. I like Hodge. And Hodge gives Galen the pouch of ashes. Mm-hmm. It says something about throwing it into burning water. Ominous. Yes. Who knows what that means? Ominous prophecies. Yes, indeed. Uh, Galen tries to bring him back to life using the amulet. But yep. like glows red hot and like burns him. So it's like there's certain things you can't or shouldn't do with magic. I don't know. Or maybe he's just not powerful enough <laughs> even with the amulet. I mean, that's at least like a, you know, fifth level spell. <laughs> at <Here>. least. <laughs> this guy's too yeah. low. <laughs> this guy's third level best. Uh, they get to Erland. And we see them in kind of the same terrain that we saw where the girl was taken. And they say that this is where the dragon lives. His lair is not far from here. They take Galen to it. He's like, is this the only entrance? They say Yes. So he decides he's going to use the amulet, says some words, and causes this big avalanche to come down and seal the entrance. Simple. Sure. Film over. Roll credits. That, obviously, that's going to kill the dragon, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, there is that cool scene where he actually goes into the entrance a bit. Yeah, yeah. He kind and, of skulks in. And, and calls out Vermithrax. And we hear like, kind of like this distant snort, and like the smoke billows up from the cave. Good scene. Yeah. And I like the avalanche too because it's it doesn't quite go how he envisions it. Yeah, it's like yeah. too much. Yeah. It's over the top, and it's good miniature work here too. Mm-hmm. But they all think, okay, dragon's dead. Great, let's go party. They hoof it back to their village and have a celebration. We see this like effigy of straw in the shape of a dragon getting burned, and Galen's performing tricks for the kids. Uh, Valerian comes out. <laughs> she <laughs> comes out dressed as a gown and everything. So I'm a girl. <laughs> and you know, it's it's nice because everyone just accepts it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the men tells... And, and you don't really think about it then, I guess, when you watched it as a kid. But now it's kind of like, you know what? That's pretty nice that everyone's just like, all right, yeah. Yeah. Everyone's cool. kind of like, what? And then Galen goes up and dances with her. And then yeah, everyone joins in and everyone's cool. And one of the other fathers even says how clever that is, and he wished he thought of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But you're right, yeah. It's cool how easily she's accepted. I will say she totally jumped the gun because that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that dragon ain't dead. The dragon isn't dead. <laughs> uh, Tyrion shows back up. You know, I want to talk about Tyrion showing up here too because I don't know why. It was comical and I think it's great, but every time Tyrion rides into the town, he always takes this one path that goes through like a big puddle of water and he like splashes it everywhere on the people. <laughs> He's a dick. Yeah. That's why he goes out of his way to get people wet. I was like, this, is, this is just like an open air village. Like you could approach from any direction. But every time it's like this one path where it trudges through the water and just, he probably sends men ahead to put like pails of water in the mud and stuff. <laughs> I was like this asshole, man. Jeez. Um, but yeah, he says the King wants to see you. Mm. Galen's immediately suspicious, as well he should be. And then we cut to the court of King Cassiodorus. Yes, Cassiodorus Rex. And they are singularly unimpressed by Galen's parlor tricks. Mm-hmm. He's like making a, a duck appear or something yeah. like that. And the, the ta- he tries to <laughs> fly the table around and it just kind of wobbles and falls over. It's not the right time. Mm-mm. But the king does notice that he keeps clutching at his chest that Galen does this when he's casting his spells. <laughs> so he knows there's something up. Um, the king tells a story of his brother mm-hmm. who was a good king and brave and went to fight the dragon and was killed. <laughs> <laughs> and again, that's some of the like uh, dark fantasy aspect yeah, of this. Is and, the, like... and it's more subversion because mm-hmm. that's the sort of person that should have triumphed over the dragon. But right. you know, in real life... It's a fucking dragon. This, yeah. You can tell how much Martin really was influenced by this movie, mm-hmm. I think, because of its kind of groundedness and real world atmosphere where the good doesn't always. And even what we're about to get into, which is political corruption. Right. Exactly. Um, so the king's like, yeah, you're no sorcerer. He takes the amulet. They lock him up in a dungeon. <laughs> but one person in the court's kind of intrigued with Galen. That would be the princess. Yes, Elspeth. Elspeth. Played by Chloe Salomon. Mm-hmm. And she is your upright, mm-hmm. good, virtuous sort of princess. Because she's talking to Galen in the cell, and he's talking about how, oh, you've, you've been kept out of the lottery because you're rich. Yeah, now, they, the they king's just, not putting your name in there. Yeah, they leave your name out every time. But she thinks every year that she's, <laughs> or I guess twice a year, I guess that's Equinox. Um... Or is that four? How many equinoxes in a year? Autumnal, Autumn, vernal. So four. Yeah. Um, and she's like, yeah, no, I have. He's like, no, you haven't. So she starts having doubts. And she goes to her father, who's trying to turn lead into gold with the amulet. <laughs> that again burns him. Mm-hmm. Glows bright and burns him. And she's like, hey, has my name been kept out of the lottery? <laughs> and he's distracted. He's like, yes. I mean, no. <laughs> Um, um, and it really weighs on the princess's mind. Yeah, because she's a good person. Mm-hmm. And she truly feels uh, guilty that she has dodged the danger all these years of her life while other people have been sent to die. Yep. Which is cool. I like that angle of her like kind of defying mm-hmm. the status the status quo of their kingdom. And actually being a good person. Um, the ground begins to shake. And everyone's running for cover. Things are falling. Um... Something's happening. Elspeth goes and frees Galen. Um, Galen's trying to get away. He rides out on a horse. He has a little confrontation with the king before he leaves. Yeah. And they're all saying how he did this. The dragon's not dead. 
And they have to restart the sacrifices to try yep. to try to appease them. Uh, Galen gets away, and we see some of the villagers gathering at the dragon's lair, and that's where we first see the priest. No, actually, we do see him in the celebration, but yeah. anyway, very minor appearance there. Yeah, but uh, brother Jacobus. They even make a deal out of a, a Christian priest being in town, mm-hmm. played by the great Ian McDermott. <laughs> Which, who, if there's one thing I'll fault this film on. Need a little more Ian McDermott in there. Every movie needs a little more Ian McDermott. Because the little bit he gets to actually like have the camera, he hams it up just yeah. lovingly. And it's great because this is, what, two years before Jedi comes out? Yeah. So you can see him without the makeup and everything. <laughs> but you hear him talk, and it's it's not the Emperor voice, but it is it's, uh, the, Palpatine. The, the Senator voice. Palpatine yeah, You hear voice. Palpatine yeah. talking. It's like yeah. in the prequels when he's doing like the, the chamber speeches. And right, stuff. yeah. So you immediately don't trust this fucker. <laughs> He's talking about how this is actually the devil. Yeah. You know, it's not just a dragon. It is the devil. Yes. He's the embodiment of the devil sent there to punish them for their yeah. sins. And he starts praying and all this shit. And then we see, like, the ground opens up. A tree falls on him. And we kind of see the back of Vermithrax's head mm-hmm. as he's rising up out of the chasm. It's pretty epic. Mm-hmm. And the priest is like, you know, back Satan, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he just gets roasted. Yeah. Just immediately roasted by Vermithrax. Great. Love it. And then we get some shots of Vermithrax flying through the air and spitting fire at the village. Okay, here we go. Okay. So these shots of him flying, they don't look good. I'm okay. just gonna come out and say it. All right. I know it's like mat work where they've like got it and they've matted it into the scene and kind of moving it. Of course. Um they never have him like flapping his wings or anything in these moments. It's kinda of like he's soaring, which I know that's the thing. He's supposed to be like he's just soaring, so he doesn't need to flap his wings. But it makes it look super unnatural to me and weird. Well, we see a couple of wing flaps, mm-hmm. but I know what you I know what you're saying, and he's kind of banking like yeah. a plane would or something. Um, it, it just feels really weird. Yeah, but not and to me, it doesn't take me out because it does look a little weird. But also, this is a flying dragon. You know, it should look a little unnatural. I don't know. It pulled me out. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. But we don't get any really close looks of Vermithrax yet. No. Well, they're still, they're still holding back for the yeah. the big moment. Um, so he burns the village a bit, causes some ruckus. Uh, I think it's the next day that Tyrion arrives at the blacksmiths, who is Valerian's father. He's looking for Galen. He talks about how there's going to be a new lottery to appease the dragon. Which and how, uh, Valerian's father is never named. He's just a blacksmith. But is played by Emrys James. Yeah. And he's good. Um. But Tyrion makes a point of saying that, hey, Valerian's going to be in this lottery now. Yeah. <laughs> you were smart to hide her, but... Mm. <laughs> and after they leave, turns out Galen's hiding there. He was hiding underneath the anvil. Yeah, like interesting hiding spot. Yeah, it's like they smuggled or something before. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Where's our uh, Disney Plus show that's like the more in-depth universe of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's, what's been going on in this village? Um... Galen asks if the blacksmith ever forged a weapon. Mm-hmm. So we get a smash cut to him pulling something out of a river. And it's kind of the spear-lance yeah. combination thing. It's not really like a real type medieval weapon, but it's obviously supposed to be a spear. It has like a really broad kind of tip. Almost like a really large arrowhead. In a way, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he says it's the best thing he ever made. It's called Dragon Slayer. But he never had the nerve to use it. Yep. 
Uh, Galen says that won't be enough to kill the dragon. He needs the amulet back. Mm-hmm. So he's got to go back to the castle. Yep. And as he's making his way into the castle, there's another lottery being drawn. Yeah, he kind of uses that as a front yeah, to sneak yeah. in. That's good cover. Because Valerian's in the ring of girls now. <laughs> and they had this big to-do pulling out the lottery, like a chit of wood or stone or something like that that the name's on. Yeah, it's like little pieces of wood that they put everyone's name on. Yeah. And then they shuffle them and draw one. <laughs> I love it. So the the MC of this event, uh, he's kind of priestly. He's probably like their chamberlain or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's doing his speech. Oh, he's the dragon, blah, blah, blah. And he pulls out the name. And he's like, oh, <laughs> he doesn't want to <laughs> yeah. say anything. And the king's like, go ahead, read the name. Read the name. Oh, I don't think I should. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Elspeth. Yeah. And the king's like, wait a minute. No, wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes up and says, <laughs> I can't make out this name. And in fairness to that person, we'll discard this one and draw again. <laughs> But he draws another one, and it's also Elspeth. Mm-hmm. And we learn that the princess has rigged the election. Yep. She says, for too long, her name's been kept out, so this is the right thing to do. Yep. That she'll go in exchange for all those times it could have been her, and it wasn't. A good, chivalrous person who I'm sure nothing bad will befall. <laughs> how could how could such a font of goodness in this world <laughs> have anything bad happen to them after this? Right. I'm sure she'll, yeah. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> um, so the king is reluctant and kind of wants to throw the whole thing out, but he's also bound by his own laws that he has made, and they just push along with taking the princess. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, yeah, Galen's sticking through the castle, and uh, he's in the king's study and finds the amulet, but then the king and his men come upon him. Um, but, ah, and the king's <laughs> like, okay, here, take the amulet. Yeah. Save my daughter. He's ready to cut a deal. Yep. When it comes down to his daughter, yeah, he's ready to try to kill the dragon. <laughs> uh, then we see them, like, they're refining the spear. Galen's hitting yeah. it up. They, like, reforge it. Yeah, and every time he smashes the hammer on it, we see, like, big bright sparks. Magic weapon. Magic weapon. Yep. Uh, let's see what happens here. And then, um, isn't this also when Valerian goes and collects the dragon scales? Yeah, she yeah. goes to the entrance of the cave, starts collecting scales, and she's attacked by a baby dragon. Which is fucking crazy looking. Yeah, it's good. You know, it's, <laughs> it's obviously a large puppet. It's about the size of a large dog, I'd say. Yeah. Man, they're cool looking. They're very cool looking. And I think they and all of the physical, like the big Vermithrax head, I think that was all done by Chris Wayless. Oh. Who you will, of course, know from like Gremlins and The Fly. Which makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so Galen cuts the anvil with the spear, which spears aren't really meant for cutting, but you know, whatever. It's got this big, broad kind of blade. Yeah, the on other it. thing is like fucking, yeah. you know how expensive an anvil must be to get? <laughs> yeah, the blacksmith is like, dude, <laughs> why did you cut my anvil? That's my living. Uh, <laughs> um, so he's got a dragon slain spear he's got his magic and he has a dragon scale shield yep Valerian gives him the shield and also tells him about the young dragons mm-hmm. and without missing a beat he says that they'll have to be killed too <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't think he's gonna survive <clears throat> which that's another thing if this were a more conventional like I guess you would say straight high fantasy kind of story 
you could see it be one of those things where it's like they want, like one of the dragons would be his little buddy or something. Yeah. And... Or they would have to somehow make peace with them yeah. or something like that. No, like we got to no. kill them too. Yeah. <laughs> they all die. And Valerian thinks Galen's in love with Elspeth. That's why he's going to go save her. Yeah, and... but he says, no, I love you, you dummy. <laughs> so <laughs> then we see Elspeth taken to the stake. Um, Galen shows up, but Tyrion's there as well. Uh-huh. And he says, I'm not going to be scared off by your tricks. Um, and they start fighting, right? And he, and the whole time, um, Tyrion kept saying something about how, you know, he's just going to cause more trouble. He needs to stop. Uh-huh. And even Elspeth is like, says Tyrion's right. You know, stop trying to save me. You know, this is the only way to keep everyone safe. Yeah. Another subversion on the whole damsel in distress, you know, not right. wanting to be saved. And here's all, some more of that Star Wars influence, too. Because every time they, their, their weapons hit, we see big flashes of light. Oh, yeah. True, yeah. And, and sparks and stuff. Same thing as, like, the lightsaber clashes. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, they still want them to be lightsabers. And then this is where, like, the ground starts to shift a bunch, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the princess is freed by Galen. He cuts her manacles. But she wanders over to the entrance of the lair. And then Tyrion's kind of, like, behind the stake. <laughs> talking some shit. And uh, Galen does what a spear is meant to do. He thrusts with it. Goes right through the stake. <laughs> and, and through Tyrion. So he's dead. Deserved. Yeah. But the whole time, Elspeth's missing... Uh, Galen goes into the cave and stumbles over her body, mm-hmm. which is getting gnawed on by baby fucking dragons. <laughs> yeah, one of them has her foot in its in its in its mouth. Yeah. there's blood everywhere. This part, Tiffany was like, "What the fuck is going on right now?" <laughs> it gets so dark. I love it. I fucking love this movie. And I'm thinking back, and this is probably one of the reasons why I didn't like it as much when I was younger, mm. because I I wanted that more. You know fantastical high fantasy yeah uh, even i wasn't ready for the the darkness i guess i don't know <laughs> but i embrace it now. See, i think i was a little older when i finally saw this so right. i was already like primed on horror films and there stuff. You go. yeah i was probably like oh god eight maybe when i saw this um it, it's gnarly though it is gnarly and galen kind of swiftly and bloodily <laughs> kills them uh, there's a third one that jumps out of nowhere, attacks him. He drops his spear. He beats it to death with a torch. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a note on the little baby dragons too. Yeah. I wanted to share. So uh, it says Ken Ralston designed them with the assistance of graphic novel illustrator David Burnett. Okay. In uh, designing so them, just did uh, Burnett attempted to find a look that didn't inspire sympathy, so that their deaths would be more acceptable to audiences. Um. He had this realization that most young animals are appealing to people because they have these large eyes mm-hmm. that kind of draw you in. And so he designed the dragon nets to have these very small eyes. And then they refined the design element to kind of have like bulldog and bat-like features to their faces and kind of hints of what they'll be like when they're more adult as far as like the horns and stuff. Yeah. But it's just like shrunk down on them because they're not developed yet. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I just cool. love that that much thought even went into these little creatures when they're like, what, maybe 10 minutes in the film, if that? If like, not yeah, even that. Five minutes, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, but they still sat and thought this hard about, like, mm-hmm. this is what it would look like. This is how you're supposed to feel when you see them. That's craftsmanship. Um, yeah, you know, that's and, dedication. And it, it shows in the movie. 
Um, so then Galen goes on down into the cave and he finds himself in this large cavern and there's this burning underground lake. And this is where we finally get a good look at Vermithrax. Oh, yeah. This, this is the money shot. Yeah. And he rises up out of the water. Huge animatronic head. It looks so good. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, he brings fire on Galen. She'll protect him. And then we start seeing some of the great uh, go motion mm-hmm. that Phil Tippett used. And that's a form of stop motion animation. I think it was first used on Empire, if I'm not mistaken. He used it for the Tauntauns and Adats. Um, basically, while the while so they, so the note I have says that this is the first actual film to use go motion. Okay, maybe he was refining it during. Empire uh, it says you know parts of the model in this case the dragon were mechanized and then the movement was programmed in a computer. Yeah. So during shooting, the computer would move the model while the camera is shooting, causing a motion blur, which would make the animation and movement more convincing. Right, because a lot of times with stop motion, you get that jerkiness. Right. But yeah, and, and that's that's one of the things that keeps that makes this dragon good and has kept him so good is that go motion. Mm-hmm. Especially when he starts chasing Galen. It kind of has an ageless quality it to does, it. It does, yeah. Because when he's going down that cave, he, and he's walking like a bat. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have, uh, you know, forearms. He has the hind legs yeah. and he has like little hand, like kind of like a bat, little hands on the wings. Yeah, and bat's stuff. a good comparison. Yeah. I love how he's walking like that, and it's just it's it's cool, it's creepy, it's scary. And oh, and then see, despite their best efforts to make the little dragon babies unappealing, when Vermithrax comes upon them and he's like nuzzling them with his snout, and they're dead, and you know he raises up, I feel bad for him. Yeah, you know, for sure. So now he's really pissed, or she, or it. I don't know. Maybe asexual. I'm not sure. Um, we don't have that much dragon lore. To no, we don't have that much. Ulrich didn't go into that. <laughs> he didn't go into procreation. Uh, so, Fermithrax is really pissed now. He's he's going through the cave trying to find Galen. But Galen's hiding up on this outcropping above the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Jumps down with a spear. Stabbing him. And we get some more good stop motion. Where we see the dragon kind of thrashing around. With little Galen on top and everything. Looks pretty good. Yeah, looks good. Um, the spear breaks off, though, and he's thrown off of his back. And I guess he somehow stumbles out of the cave because then we find Valerian finding him. Yeah. He's laying outside, kind of beaten up, and he just says, still alive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Valerian just wants Galen to leave with her. <laughs> just, just fuck it, leave. Yeah. Uh, the her father kind of gives him their blessing. He he says something about how he's happy. He'll be happy when the dragon's dead because he thinks that all the magic in the world is fading, mm-hmm. and that means that you know the dragons will be gone be gone soon too. So they're just gonna book it and leave. Yeah. Why? Well, I, like, I, I like that practicality. <laughs> um, and as they're leaving, Galen notices that there's a solar eclipse coming. And he gets another vision where he sees like the fiery lake. Yeah, we come back to that prophecy that uh, Hodge uh, had. Yeah. And he starts to realize that Ulrich had a plan. Yeah. So he starts explaining that Ulrich couldn't make the journey, so he had to make it for him. They go back into the dragon's lair. He says some incantation, throws the ashes into the lake, and out comes Ulrich. It's like mm-hmm. green flame, and he's spinning around and all this stuff. <laughs> 
And then he's yeah, he's back in his like pompous finery where he mm-hmm. where he was gonna leave. <laughs> so then the villagers oh yeah, the villagers are getting baptized at this point. Saying that oh, yeah, yeah. Christianity is going to save them. Uh, but Vermithrax is in the sky. And that is such a cool shot. When he when he's flying and he lands on that peak. Come on. That is just <laughs> gorgeous. That is just perfect. Um, we should say too, like what Ulrich reveals to him. Oh yeah. There's like a whole thing about like how they're gonna finish it. And that was that Galen had to destroy the amulet at the right time. Right. And then that will release some sort of energy that would destroy yeah. the dragon. But he'll know who all the time. Mm-hmm. And I like this part because it's also like Vermithrax seems to sense Ulrich too at this yeah, point. Yeah, he immediately comes for him. It's kind of like um, in The Exorcist when the demon <laughs> yeah. senses Marin, you know, and knows that shit's about to get real. Uh, but it goes epic for a moment because he like teleports himself on top of the mountain yeah. and like summons a storm. Yeah, a big storm comes up. And at this point, I just realized that the amulet he, that the whole the amulet he's been wearing the entire time and using looks like a big D eight. <laughs> well, D and D did exist at that time. Absolutely, so. yeah. Uh, so the dragon's like attacking Auric. It's like flying by him, uh, clutching at him with his claws. Auric makes lightning strike the dragon. That's a cool sequence. Fucking epic. That is yeah. awesome. So then we see all these holes in his wings and shit. Um, but the dragon does manage to grab Ulrich. He's got him dead to rights. Yeah. But Galen realizes that this is the time. So he smashes the amulet, causing this big explosion. Yeah, the wizard fucking explodes. Yeah. He just fucking <laughs> blows up. And that blows up the dragon. And Vermithrax falls to the ground. And then the sun comes out and we see... I mean, this... He's a, yeah, the Vermithrax just turned inside out. It's pretty yeah. bloody. There's like guts and shit everywhere. Gnarly. Yeah. And then this is the sad part. He's, he's the hero. He saved the day. <laughs> yep. The villagers rock up. And the first thing they say is like, oh, thank God for delivering us from this evil. Yeah. And adding insult to injury, <laughs> the king comes up with a big sword that he can be- barely even wield. Yeah. Sticks it into the smoking carcass of the dragon. <laughs> and then his chamberlain's like, oh, hell, you know, dragon slayer, King Corcanaris. <laughs> so he gets the credit, just like a politician. <laughs> and so ultimately uh, then Galen and Valerian decide they're going to leave together yeah and she says she doesn't care if Galen isn't a sorcerer he he says he only wishes that they had a horse and one pops up over the hill and they ride off together on the horse which to me right that kind of suggests that like now he just has the magic he doesn't need the amulet yeah or yeah and also he would never have the type of power that the amulet gave him mm-hmm. You know, and, and sacrificing the amulet means that he's never going to have that power. Right. So maybe he himself didn't slay the dragon, but it also means something that he was able to destroy that item that, that gave him this power he coveted. And again, if you have that idea of like magic's fading from the world, the dragon's been removed, but now that amulet's been removed. Yeah. And so therefore, like the whole, the pool and force of magic in the world has just declined further. Right. Maybe that's too far to read into this kind of film, but... I don't think it is. I really don't. I think this um, film's deeper than a lot of people would think. As two dudes that also play a lot of role-playing games, that was like a major thought on my mind. Yeah. When I was... When it finished, I was thinking about like, oh, if this was like a setting that you played in, it's like magic's dying from the world. That, that would be kind of cool. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. <sighs> the end. The end. Tied up in a nice little bow. 
their adventure continues. Look for the Disney Plus show. Never, probably. <laughs> since yeah, get... <laughs> Willow gets a TV series, but not Dragon Slayer. What the hell? Uh, let me run down some notes I have. Okay. Uh, this movie was shot mostly on location in Wales. Other than the final scene, which was shot in Scotland at Sky. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, it is said that Peter McNichol is embarrassed of this movie, and he does not list it on his CV. See, that's bullshit. That is bullshit. <laughs> he needs to be made known that this is a good movie. Yeah. And he is the leading man, which is, you know says something. Yeah. Because a lot of his other notable roles, he's more of like the villain or a secondary character. Right. And I, I love his character because he's, he's not your typical hero. Right. Yeah. He's kind of just this goofy kid that gets... He, he put needs, in a situation. He, he needs to reevaluate his performance in this movie. And it's one of those of like a hero that has to rise to greatness, which is a good uh, good example to have up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. So this story leans on a lot of like classic tales of dragons, especially like Western culture tales of dragons. Uh, one that's a big influence on the idea of the story is Saint George and the Dragon, mm-hmm. which is a classic tale where a maiden gets sacrificed to appease a dragon and save a village, and then. You know, a knight quests out to save her. Yep. Um, and that, that same thing, St. George's Tale also has that idea of a sacrificial lottery where they were drawing people oh, yeah. to have their sacrifices. Okay. Um, and it's often depicted in that story that St. George comes with sort of a lance that's been blessed to slay the dragon, mm. same as the spear that he gets in the film. Right. Let's see. We talked about the go motion stuff. We talked about... Oh, they were also inspired by the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence yeah. in Fantasia. Yeah. The whole master Classic. and apprentice. That's icon. that's very much the Galen and Ulrich mm-hmm. section of the story. Um, oh, to do the dragon fire, the special effects team had a pair of military style flamethrowers. That's what I'm talking to about. To produce the flames. That's what I'm talking about. I'll take that any day <laughs> over CG shit. Let's know? get dangerous. We need fire. What are we going to do? Fucking flamethrowers. Yes. <laughs> Uh, including the hydraulic 40 foot model, 16 other dragon puppets were used to depict Vermithrax. Each one was capable of flying, crawling, and breathing fire. So good. Of course, Phil Tippett did the stop motion effects. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Mirren, who also worked on Star Wars, was the effects cameraman. Let's see. Uh, after principal shooting, a special effects team of 80 people at ILM worked for eight months to make 160 composite shots for the dragon. Wow. Uh, and that's like nothing today. That's yeah. nothing now. Uh, Chris Wallace sculpted and operated the dragon head used for close-ups. The model was animated with, through a combination of radio controls, cable controllers, it's perfect air bladders, levers, and through hand with like rod, you know, parts to hold onto. I still think this looks better than any CG. I really do. Um, it has that physicality. You know, it's yeah. it's in the frame. It's in that space. Uh, let's see. According to sculptor Bill Basso, who worked on the 2002 fantasy film Reign of Fire, the dragons in that film were designed to be look to look as if they were an updated version of Vermithrax. Now, did that succeed? I don't know, but you know, I barely remember that movie. It's not that good. Yeah. Uh, what else? The film got a comic book adaptation published by Marvel. Did not know that. Uh, which is funny now that Disney owns Marvel. See, they've got all the rights there. They can, they, we can go for the Dragon Slayer multiverse. I'm, I'm down for that, dude. Um, I'm down for it. Yeah, so Marvel and Paramount launched a joint venture comics imprint in the 90s. And then it's funny, the interplay of all of this. So then like 2008 to 2011, 
Paramount acted as the distributor for the MCU before they were big enough to kind of go on their own. Oh, wow. Now, now that they got on their own, they've gone for a while, and now you know Disney purchased them and took over. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a funny interplay between the three of those companies in regards to this film. That was interesting. Um, oh, the special effects were nominated for an Oscar. Ah, uh, yes, yes. But lost to another ILM movie, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> so if you're going to lose to a movie, it may as well be Raiders, right? Yeah, may as well be yourself. I, I can't get too mad about that. Otherwise, I think... If it wasn't for Raiders, Dragon Slayer would have won that category. Yeah. And then another funny connection for company stuff. When this released internationally, the West German release was handled by 20th Century Fox. Hmm. Which Disney now also owns. Yeah. So it's like they're just trying to cover up the fact this film exists and purchasing... (laughs) Some cram plot. Purchasing every company that has any connection to Dragon Slayer. Well, I question that because you know what we're getting next month? Is Dragon Slayer finally on Blu-ray and 4K. <gasps> Do you know who's releasing it? Um, I think it's Paramount. Cool. Yeah. Well, I guess it would have to be at this point. Yeah, Disney's not putting their name all over it, that's for sure. So we finally, and I mean, I will pick this up, because I'm pretty anxious to see this in, it, in all its glory. Yeah, it would be nice to see it all touched up. Mm-hmm. Uh, when this aired on TV, CBS edited 12 minutes out for the network television premiere. Ah, uh, the aforementioned bathing scene. Yes, the two scenes that were removed is the bathing scene in the lake, and then they cut down the scene where Galen causes the avalanche. I don't know... That makes no sense to me. I don't know why they cut that part down, but... I read one that they said they cut it out entirely. Yeah. Which makes no sense. <laughs> I don't understand that. Maybe if they just... trimming it for time, is that really the scene you want to cut? Yeah. I don't know. That's another great point thing about this movie. There's no fucking fat on it. True. It's lean. Yeah. There's no wasted time. Love it. I know that's my typical gripe. <laughs> Things are just but too no, it damn is long true. these when days. When it starts, the, the plot's already in motion, and then yeah. they kind of catch you up to speed. Right. That is and it does a lot of showing and not telling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that exhausted all the fun notes I had. I don't know if you have any other uh, little... I think that's pretty much everything I have as well. Little bits you want to dig in on. I think that's about it. Okay. Hit that pretty good. So this is your first time seeing it in a while, right? Yeah. Okay. What are your thoughts on Dragon Slayer? So I quite liked it. I appreciated that when I, when I thought in my memories about it, I was like, oh, it's like a high fantasy film from Disney. And I kind of forgot how dark it was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's thrown into that whole dark fantasy mm-hmm. realm. Like, um, so that impressed me. I liked it that, um, I kind of thought it was like a, in my mind, in my recollection, I kind of remembered like a generic, dude goes out and kills a dragon, saves the day kind of thing. But right. It's actually, it's more, it's more nuanced than that. There's more depth. There's more stuff going on. Um, and you're right. It is like very economically told and that you get a lot of info, but they don't waste a lot of time mm-hmm. getting you there. And there's no stupid scrolling written prologue at the beginning. <laughs> Once yeah. upon a time. Dragons. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You just get all that naturally as it develops. Yeah. Um, the dragon looks amazing. Is it the best dragon ever put yes, in film? Yes. <laughs> well, here's what I'm going to say. I racked my brain, and I couldn't currently think of one that I know of that surpasses it. So, All right. Um, Damn right. I want to say there could be, but I guess right now I don't have a good answer to give, so i got to give it to Vermithrax. Damn right. I mean, the dragons from like um, uh, Game of Thrones, they look mm. pretty cool. They're yeah. great. But, you it know. That's what it, it is. There's just something. <laughs> there's something about the physicality of Vermithrax 
that, that just makes it so real looking. Um, again, I think like some of the scenes with him don't really work so well, especially the flying shots. Those really pulled me out. I didn't yeah, care for those. I didn't um, some of the story beats are a little a little weird, but I think it's weird in a good way. Like the whole the whole thing with the princess getting eaten by the dragonettes. Love it. Like you would never at the start of this film think that's no. going to happen. No, that doesn't happen. Princesses don't get eaten by little baby dragons. It's so out of left field. It, it does feel like it kind of tears apart a thing because there's this whole thing of like Valerian's into Galen. The princess kind of seems like she's into Galen. You think there's going to be this love triangle, but then that just gets like squished by the dragon. I didn't think she was that into him. Which, which I think more, is. I think she was more curious than into him. I think it's epic too because it just kind of like underscores the power of the dragon. That's just like, fuck you, fuck everything about you. Yeah. Your storylines don't exist because I'm just going to right. destroy you. Yeah. Um. So that's cool. Um. It's very subversive. It's yes. a very subversive story. Um, There's hints about Christianity not working, <laughs> you know. And then that said, I guess also I feel like if the, if the only other criticism I could give it is that at times I do feel like it's a little bit of that whole like uh, like style flash over like substance in a way. Like part of it is supposed to be the spectacle of the dragon. Well, maybe, sure. Maybe more than like the story at times. And they, they think they did too much spectacle and didn't concentrate on the story as much. To a degree, maybe. Okay. Um, now, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think that's the choice. That dragon deserves all the spectacle. That's the, the choice they went with, and it's understandable why they would. Yeah. Um, you know something else I really like about this movie, about the dragon? He what? doesn't talk. See, I went two different ways on that, because I was wondering when I was going to bring this up, and I guess I'll bring it up now. Tiffany had a lot of problems with the film, and it was because, for her, she didn't like that the dragon never talked. I'm not sure I like talking dragons. And it was interesting because I thought about it and I was like, a lot of her experiences with dragon and media come from like stuff that's been pulled like out of D&D. Because in mm-hmm. D&D, dragons talk. Right. That's just like a huge part of... Sure. Um, and everything that she's played with me with D&D, dragons have talked. And um, then you go to like The Hobbit and Smog Talks yeah. and a lot, a lot of the real <laughs> iconic depictions, they talk. Sure. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, especially like with Smog. I mean, that's mm-hmm. probably like, that's where we get the whole way dragons behave mm-hmm. is from Smaug, honestly. Right. Um, and it's not bad. It's just, there's something about it I like when they don't talk. It's like they don't even, maybe they can, they don't want to, they don't mm-hmm. care to, you know? They're so beyond us. What the fuck do they have to talk to us about? I don't know. It's scarier. If, if you're going <laughs> for a scarier dragon, mm-hmm. it's good for it not to talk. And this is definitely a horror movie type dragon. That's fair. So all that said, where I'm at on this, I don't think I love it as much as you do. No. I do I do quite enjoy it. I quite appreciate it. I think the effects are killer, and it's a benchmark that anyone that wants to put a dragon into film, mm-hmm. I think you have to sit and think about this movie for a minute and then say, okay, how am I going to do it? Yeah. Because yeah. Um, they did set a high bar. That, it, that will always be a comparison point, I think. Yeah. 40 years later, it's still the best <laughs> dragon. Uh, but for me, I, I sit pretty confidently at a, at a hard three. Okay. I accept that. You didn't come at me saying this movie sucks and it's stupid. <laughs> oh no, I would. I would like to hear the argument for anyone that thinks this is like a one star movie. Yeah, I just don't see where you're coming at from it. I, I guarantee you, it would be a younger person saying that it's slow and boring. Well, wow. <laughs> and the effects suck. <laughs> at least it wasn't shot in a giant tower where they make everything VCG. So, uh huh. Looking at you, Marvel. <laughs> All right, what were your thoughts, Jason? Well, it's just the first time I've seen it in a while. Um, 
And I really am anxious to see it in 4K. I wish I could have seen that before we did this, but we announced this, and then like the next day, I saw yeah. it was getting a 4K release. This is again your weird power of like prediction, where you will just decide to do something, and then suddenly it gets a Blu-ray release. I gotta or keep like pushing this. Some big outlet will suddenly do like a let's go back and retrospectively look at this thing. Yeah, I've got a movie I need to pull out <laughs> soon that needs to be re-released because right now it's not available anywhere i'm not going to say what it is because it is something i want to watch <laughs> well maybe you can manifest it my friend yeah um but i i think my appreciation for, for this movie has grown over the years actually mm. like i mentioned before when i was younger i kind of dismissed it i yeah. like the dragon but everything else i didn't care about because it wasn't it is a more mature film than you think it's going to be yeah yeah i think my thing was there wasn't enough air quotes action yeah because I, I, my first fantasy film I remember seeing was Excalibur. Oh, nice. And it is a, it's kind of a slow plotting movie yeah. on its own. But there's some cool fights. You mm. get all this armor and you know, knights on horses. And, and this doesn't really have that. And back then I didn't like that. But now I appreciate it. Because it's more grounded. It's more realistic <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. That is the thing I'll say. Like this time I noticed I was very much like, oh, look at the politics of this kingdom. Yeah. Oh, look at this. Oh, right. look at how they're accepting of her revealing her gender yeah yeah there's a lot of things to appreciate i think um so evaluating it now i, I i'm at four stars for this movie it's not a perfect film it does mm-hmm. have flaws for sure you know, um but by and large i think it's still it remains the best depiction of a dragon in the movie i love its subversive qualities which also again were lost on me when i was a kid mm-hmm. um yeah I think it's it's a it's a good time. If you haven't seen this for whatever reason, check it out. Wait, yeah, wait for the 4K to come out. Wait yeah. for the Blu-ray to come out, and then go check it out because I'm sure it's going to look good. And maybe once that drops, it'll hit a streaming service or something. I'm sure it will. Because yeah. I watched this on uh, Canopy, which that is a good tool mm-hmm. if you ever need it. I think I watched it on Tubi. I have a DVD, but oh, it's a really bad DVD. Which, <laughs> that, again, that's why I'm so glad it's getting a Blu-ray release now because that that DVD is like from. When they first came out, you know, yeah. it's probably like from 2005 or some shit. <laughs> is it one of the ones where it's like the cardboard cases with the plastic snap or something? Uh, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but yeah. Um, classic flick. If you're, if you're a big fantasy nerd and you haven't seen this, you need to watch it. If I, for nothing else for Vermithrax. I think it was a good pick for us to start on as cool. far as just being a good classic. It, it, it's well known, but maybe not as appreciated as it mm-hmm. should be. Yeah, I agree. Cool. So that brings us to your pick next time, correct? Next is not my pick. Oh. Next is um how do I don't want to set this up. I guess I'll set it up that we are maybe gonna have a special guest next time. Okay. It's not a hundred percent, but whether they're with us or not, mm-hmm. we will be doing their pick for the next episode. Okay. Um and we will just get into that on episode. That way I don't pre-say too many things now <laughs> and jinx us. All right. But the pick that we will be doing is the 2009 film Solomon Kane, directed by M.J. Bassett. Oh. Now, this is going to move us more into the sword and sorcery realm for a storyline. Uh, Solomon Kane is a literary creation. He's one of uh, Robert E. Howard's characters. Mm-hmm. Not so much barbarian like Conan. Uh, Solomon Kane is the, a Puritan that fights against evil monsters. He is. You're being very cagey about a possible guest. Is it going to be James Perfroy? Is that uh, is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> it, it, this is genre exposure, so don't set your hopes too high. Um, you know, right? Is what it is. Yeah. 
Cool. I, I'm actually excited about this because for some reason I haven't seen it. Oh. Even oh. though I'm a huge, a huge uh, Robert E. Howard fan, I haven't seen it. I don't want to bury the lead. It's got some problems, but I do quite like it. So right. I'll be interested to see what you think of it. Yeah, cool. Excellent. We'll, we'll get into all of that next time. Looking forward to it, man. Otherwise, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening in. Thank you whenever you reach out to us. Uh, let us know what you think about Dragon Slayer. Yeah, let us know what you think. Is there a better dragon? Tell me the contenders. Yeah. I would like to know. <laughs> and I will tell you you're wrong. <laughs> um, hit us up with any movie recommendations. We always filter those in between every block. And we always need more. We always appreciate it. Whatever you want us to watch, man, we'll do it. We'll do it, we'll man. Check it out. Tell it's us fun. It's super fun. Yeah. You can hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Shoot us an email at genreexposure at gmail.com. Even if it's just to say, hey, I saw this random movie and I think it's awesome and I want you guys to know about it. We love that kind of stuff, man, and we super appreciate it. Hell so yeah. Hit us up on wherever you want and just keep tuning in and listening and sharing and spreading the love of films. Yeah, man. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening